This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with special correspondent Jonathan Miller. He's a longtime independent radio producer who's led international reporting projects for NPR, Marketplace, and The World. He's also been active in a group in his hometown of Ithaca, New York, called Ithaca City of Asylum, which has been hosting exiled writers and artists since 2001. Ithaca City of Asylum is a project of the Center for Transformative Action, which is a nonprofit affiliated with Cornell University. And on today's show, we're going to hear Jonathan talk with his guests about cities of asylum, also known as cities of refuge. Those are communities that put out the welcome mat for writers, artists, journalists, and human rights defenders whose work puts them at risk in their home countries. In a moment, we'll meet a political cartoonist who fled Nicaragua during a violent crackdown on dissent and landed in Ithaca, New York with his family with help from a local volunteer group there. Also just ahead, a man who, with his wife and neighbors, renovated a rundown house in Pittsburgh back in 2004 and made it available to an exiled Chinese poet. And finally, we'll be talking to the program director for a network of more than 70 cities worldwide where threatened writers, artists, and journalists can live and work in safety. Jonathan Miller's first guest is Pedro X. Molina, a cartoonist who left his native Nicaragua with his wife and two children in December of 2018, after government forces raided and then occupied the offices of his main outlet there, Confidencial. Molina won the 2018 Courage in Editorial Cartooning Award from Cartoonists Rights Network International and the 2021 Gabo Award for Excellence in Journalism, one of the most prestigious in Latin America. And he's the first cartoonist to win that award. As an artist in residence with Ithaca City of Asylum, Molina was able to continue sending cartoons to Nicaragua while teaching courses at Ithaca College. In 2021, he received an Artist Protection Fund Fellowship from the Institute for International Education. Here's Jonathan Miller with the interview. Pedro Molina, thanks very much for doing this. I want to start just at the the day you left Nicaragua. Bring us to the airport there. Right, yeah. It was December 25, which means Christmas Day. And not even all my family knew I was leaving. None of them knew where I was going. The only thing they knew is that I was going to leave Nicaragua for, for a while. So I said goodbye. I already had my suitcase in the car. And then uh, a brother of mine drive me to the airport. We were not able to, to bring a big suitcase. We had to bring only the kind of a bag that they let you in the cabin with because uh, uh, we said that we were going to spend New Year with friends and then come back. I left with, I don't know, three pants and four shirts and nothing else. And my iPad, which is the one that I used to draw when I, I am out of the office. So we took the plane. It was a very, very long flight. Everybody was tired and they, and, and we were all kind of uh, very scared about, did we make the right decision to come here? You know, we came into Ithaca and even when we were very, very, very tired and we wanted to go to sleep, I drew a cartoon to send to be published the next day. So it was a great feeling to know that what we were doing, it had a purpose for me to be able to keep doing my work. It was a great feeling in the middle of all the things that we were feeling at that time. 
That's such an interesting point. You left your country less out of fear for your safety and more out of some sense that you needed to keep doing your work. Oh, yeah, yeah. There were two factors that for me were the most important. Uh, one is the safety of my family. And the other one, of course, it's it's what I do. It's my work. Because what makes me different than the others is that I have a voice that I can use to talk about what was happening down there. And, and I was thinking, if I keep doing this inside Nicaragua, two things can happen. One is that I will have to censor myself and I will stop talking about the, the bad things that are happening in my country. And the other one, it will be that they will put me in jail. So in order to guarantee that I will be able to keep doing my work, I took the decision to leave. I know that for many people who go into exile, there's often a sort of emotional confusion about that decision. Yes, of course, you wouldn't be of any help if you were dead or if you're in jail. But on the other hand, your friends are still back there. They're still doing the work. They're still risking. And here you are, you know, safe at a far distance. How did you feel about that? I knew that some people inside Nicaragua will see this like, you know, oh, Molina is leaving us here and, and, and he is going away and he's going to be safe and that's cowardly or something, I don't know. But uh, the, the most important thing for me is not my person, it's the thing that I can do, my cartoons, the, the voice that I have in my cartoons. So I came to a conclusion that if the price that I had to pay to keep doing my work, my cartoons, was that I would have some people mocking me or calling me names because I decided to go into exile to keep doing them, then that's a price that I'm prepared to pay because the main thing is for me to be able to, to keep doing my work. So you came here as a person in your 40s mm-hmm. with a family, two kids, two boys, a wife. Uh, you had a home, you had a car, you had a job, you had a life. Uh, you arrive here and you really have nothing. but. But I suppose the fact that there were people here who were prepared to help you was important. Of course. And I can, I can tell you this because I can compare my two exiles. This is my second exile. Uh, my first one was when I was a kid. I was actually 10 years old when we, when we had to leave uh, because of very similar reasons, actually. The same president was <laughs> the president of Nicaragua at that time, Daniel Ortega. Uh, it was in the 80s, and, and, and because of the war, we had to leave uh, our house and go to live in Guatemala. And I do remember very clearly that we didn't even have a bed to sleep on in, in Guatemala. We had to sleep on the, on the floor, with you know. We didn't have anything. We had to get everything later. And uh, even when it was a traumatic thing that I had to do it again 30 years later, I was... Please and very thankful for the people who was helping us because at least I was giving my family better conditions this time. That was important for me. It, it made me feel good. And I am very grateful for all the team uh, Itaca City of Asylum that uh, welcomed us here and, uh, and helped us with everything. I mean, I do remember that the first thing <laughs> once again connected with my ability to keep working. Uh, that I, I, I asked because they tell me, what do you need? And I, and I told them, look, I, I do need an internet connection. 
right? So the very first thing that we did is went out to get a phone, you know, with internet connections. That's another thing that make a, di a big difference with my first time because back in the 80s, there was no internet and you had to wait weeks, even months for a letter to arrive from your family and you couldn't see their faces. You couldn't see nothing. Now with the internet, that at least is less painful. I, I have to say that. You have continued to produce cartoons. Is it true that every single day that you've been away? Yeah, yeah every single day, without a stop. Uh, I publish stuff in Nicaragua seven days a week. So, you know, it's, it's a great thing that I, I have been able to keep with that rhythm and also doing some other things on top of that. So I think it's great. Well, speaking of other things, is you were offered a job, you accepted a job as a teacher at a college. It was a huge challenge because even when I have been reading English almost all my life, I never had the need to actually speak it all the time. So uh, I was very insecure and I'm still very insecure about the, the quality of my English and I always apologize for it. And then even when I have done courses before, this was, you know, like another level in a different country with a different way of doing things. And you have to learn everything. And then the pandemic hit and made it even more difficult because you had to do the whole thing through Zoom. It was a huge challenge. So you consider yourself a journalist above all and a, and, and a commentator, I suppose, but you're also an artist. And can you say anything about the role of artists in a country like yours or in other places in the world where there are, are repressive governments? Uh, why are artists important, writers, artists? Uh, it, it depends. I mean, this, this could be a very long talk because it depends on how you see art. You know, and my idea of art is something that it has to be connected with the people. And it has to reflect on what uh, what the people's desire are, and or what are their needs, and that's why I think art is important because it's a, it's another place to speak about what you care about as individual, but also as society. So, uh, and that's what that's the kind of art that interests me. It doesn't matter if it's a cartoon, if it's a painting, if it's a song, if it's a poem. But uh, something where I, where I can find that connection. So uh, I think that's why it's important because if you don't, when you don't have any other spaces to speak, at least you have art. And and I would say not only for me, but uh, when you're helping an artist, you are not just helping the person of that artist. You are helping the idea of spreading ideas. You know, and sharing those ideas with other people and, and respecting that as something meaningful. And uh, I think that's a, that's a great thing and, and, and a great initiative. All these initiatives that can allow people to keep being a voice, especially when the, that voice wants to be shut down by uh, the powers to be in, in, in so many places around this world. Just to reintroduce you here, this is Peace Talks Radio, and we're talking with Pedro Molina, a political cartoonist who fled Nicaragua, along with many other independent journalists, in 2018. Pedro Molina has won many awards for his cartooning and his commentary. His work has been published in major publications around the world. 
I'm Jonathan Miller, and I know Pedro because I volunteer with a group called Ithaca City of Asylum. We help arrange residencies for writers and artists who can no longer safely work in their home countries. Pedro Molina, as we speak, you are an Artist Protection Fund Fellow in residence at the Latin American and Caribbean Studies Program at Cornell University. Before that, you were a visiting scholar at Ithaca College. You've had help from the International Cities of Refuge Network, which alerted us in Ithaca to your case back in 2018. You've also had free legal assistance from the Artistic Freedom Initiative, and you've had help from the Cartoonists' Rights Network International. That is a lot of groups. Can you tell us what all this support has meant for you and your family? Yeah, and and I can tell you, um, if I didn't have the help of these many institutions and people, I would have stopped doing cartoons. Just to think about that, it's so depressing for me because uh, that means that you are kind of, uh, you know, what are you then? What are you useful for if you can't do what you are good at? And then uh, all the people that maybe, you know, follow your stuff. I mean, it's another voice that is silenced. And of course, this is only good for, for the people who doesn't want you to raise your voice. So the regime will be happier. You know, the dictatorship will be happier. Anything that angered the system and empowered the citizens, for me, it's worth pursuing and supporting and protecting. Do you feel you've had an impact on Nicaragua or on the debate in Nicaragua during the time you've been here? Oh, yes, I do think, especially because uh, the situation for independent journalists in Nicaragua is way much worse right now than when I had to leave. So fewer people are talking inside Nicaragua about what is happening down there. Everybody is in fear that they can be put in jail. And many, many uh, small, you know, like uh, radio shows or, or local media in my country has disappeared. So the people really, really want to keep uh, themselves informed. And uh, we have found out that we are important for that reason, uh, independent journalism. When you go into exile, you bring your family with you, and they didn't ask, your kids especially. I imagine your wife, was you've talked to her about it, but what are your feelings about bringing your family into this situation? Mixed feelings. On one hand, uh, I am sure that this was the best decision for them because they are safer here, and, and I didn't want them to grow believing that that that's a government. You know, <laughs> that's the way that you have to live, and, and those rules you have to follow them. So, being able to give them that chance to to not accept violence or corruption as something natural. I think it's a, it's a great thing, but uh, you kind of feel guilty, you know, because when we first came here, we thought we, we were going to be here, you know, for one year or two years, and then maybe we could get back to our country. But as you see the time go by, and then you see, oh God, this is going to take longer than we thought. And seeing that my kids now, they will be more connected maybe to this country. And then you kind of start thinking, okay, I should maybe focus more on trying to get them a better life in here, try to grow roots in here for them, 
and try to get some other options to be able to support them and focus maybe a little less on what is happening in my country. But the thing is that you are not living in any of those. You are not living in Nicaragua, but you are not also living here. You are kind of in the middle. And even when I say, okay, I'm going to spend half of my day you know, working about Nicaragua stuff and half of my day trying to get new freelance gigs over here or, or something that it can help me build a more stable position here in the U.S. At the end of the day, I can see that I spend 90% of my time or, or my thoughts about what is happening in Nicaragua and then 10%, you know, worrying about how to stay in here. And that's not wise. So that's something that you really, really have to learn how to deal with that. When you left your country, you became an exile. Did you feel then like you became part of a larger world of people in exile all over the world who fled other places? Oh, yeah. Or? yeah. Every, every time that you get to talk, not just with another Nicaraguan, but with people from Myanmar or, or people from Russia or people from Chile who had to left Chile many, many years ago or for Cuba or for countries around the world, we all share kind of the same story, right? Cubans know exactly how we feel, uh, how our families feel down there, how our families are feeling around here, for example. People from Myanmar, journalists who have to leave Myanmar, you understand, you know, what they were dealing with and you empathize with that. And you find out that dictatorships are the same things all over the world. Authoritarianism is the same all over the world. It doesn't matter language. It doesn't matter ideology. You may be forced to leave your country because there is a dictatorship right-wing dictatorship or a left-wing dictatorship and in the end you realize that they are both the same thing you know the, the the biggest thing and the most important thing is that we are all humans and we should focus about the rights for all humans in general and when those rights are not granted or they are abused then we have to to learn how to deal with that but all together Many of the images in your cartoons are of doves and of olive branches and things that suggest that you're a peace-loving person also. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit? I come from Nicaragua, and if you know a little bit about the history of our country, then you realize that arms, that bullets are not the answer, never. We, we had a right-wing dictatorship for 40 years in my country. Then there was an armed revolution. Right, that revolution overthrew the dictatorship and then ended up in becoming another dictatorship, just like the Somoza family was a dictatorship. The Ortega family is a dictatorship. Now, there are thousands, thousands of deaths in my country because of revolutions and civil war and everything, and they haven't solved anything. We are on the same spot we were 60 years ago, 70 years ago. So this is something that I have learned the hard way as a Nicaraguan. Weapons are not the solution. And then when I say this, people ask me, then what is the solution? I don't know. We have to find a new one and we have to find it all together. 
we have to learn new ways to deal with our problems without having to use guns. And, uh, and I must say that we have a whole generation in Nicaragua that understood that because when the protests began in 2018, you will not see violence from the side of the people. So people really understood that they wanted to make a change in a civic way. And we still believe in that. That was Nicaraguan political cartoonist Pedro Molina in conversation with journalist Jonathan Miller. To hear more from their chat, look for the January 2022 episode at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Our hour-long version or full one-on-one with Pedro Molina can be found there at peacetalksradio.com. After a quick break, we'll find out about the City of Asylum Pittsburgh operation. Stay tuned. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Jonathan Miller. And we're talking about the Cities of Asylum movement today, where communities provide two-year residencies for writers and artists who can no longer safely work in their home countries. Our next guest is Henry Reese, who co-founded City of Asylum Pittsburgh. The group started with a single house and a modest stipend for a Chinese poet who'd spent 12 years in prison. And it's a group... It has since grown to become an important cultural institution in Pittsburgh with six houses for threatened writers, a small park, a bookstore, performance space, a restaurant, a magazine, and more than 150 events per year, readings, concerts, festivals, and so on. City of Asylum's headquarters is in a renovated Masonic temple, and it's helped revitalize Pittsburgh's north side neighborhood. Again, here's our special correspondent, Jonathan Miller. Henry Reese, so you and your wife, Diane Samuels, founded City of Asylum in 2004. What was your motivation? Why did you do it? Well, in 1997, we went to a talk of Selman Rushdie, who was just beginning to come public after the fatwa from the Satanic Verses. And sort of in the middle of the talk, he mentioned a program in Europe called Cities of Asylum, which had been started by the International Parliament of Writers, which was a group of very well-known writers. And they had formed there in Europe to provide sanctuary to an Algerian writer uh, who had been persecuted. And he began to talk about the program a little. And my wife and I, we sort of kicked each other underneath the chairs, actually, and said, this is for us. And at the time, we had had a house that we had acquired. It had been a crack house that was a couple doors down from us. Our neighborhood was uh, sort of a rundown neighborhood. So we thought, what could be a better use for this home than uh, a persecuted writer? And so we reached out to the people in Europe, and eventually uh, it became real. 
And why writers and artists? Are there refugees? Are there millions of refugees around the world? Why focus on writers? Well, my own background was uh, in literature. Uh, I'd been pursuing a PhD before going into business, and Diane is a visual artist, so we were both very much committed to the arts, and we felt that literary writers in particular had no protection, that journalists had commercial entities, newspapers or TV, and associations that often were formed to protect journalists because of the obvious dangers, whereas literary writers had, they had advocacy organizations like Penn, but no protection organizations. And so we felt if there was something we could do, we should really try to protect the, the least protected, the most naked. So that was our mission. And in general, when you make an offer or reach out to a person who's been referred to you, uh, what do you offer them? Like, what, what can you provide them? And, and let me just interrupt myself, because I remember when I visited your program in Pittsburgh, uh, you told me about your first writer who needed surgery. And, and so that's, you know, not obviously on the, the list of perks you get when you become a writer in residence. But tell me about what you can offer to the writers who come. Well, it, that first writer you mentioned, he actually had dental work done and had a bridge put in. At our first meeting in public, a, a dentist volunteered to do all the dental work for our writers. And so the first time that he actually got the bridge in was at a public performance, and he got very afraid that he was going to spit this bridge out and hit someone and, and kill them with his uh, poetry reading. But what we do is, and again, this has evolved over time, with the first writer, we committed to what all the cities in Europe committed to. And we said, we'll make sure that the writer has two years of a living stipend, which, at the, you know, roughly depends on the family structure. We've varied it between eighteen and $35,000 per year for two years, medical coverage, and a furnished uh, rent-free house, which is where we started. And we discovered with the first writer that it was very difficult to meet our mission, which was to make sure that the writer could continue to write while in exile, and if necessary, to remain in long-term exile in the United States to be able to become independent and financially stable. It just took longer than two years. It became obvious. So we said, well, we can't continue to fund the stipend forever, but we will provide rent-free housing until the, so the person has a stable position to continue evolving uh, and not feel threatened, because otherwise this becomes a, like a hopscotch of, of sanctuaries, because the minute you arrive, you, you look for another place. So we got into the housing development business, and we said, okay, we need to now develop another house, because the writer who we originally invited was still in the same house. We've had to secure scholarships for uh, children, whether to college, occasionally to private schools as youngsters and legal services sometime if somebody can't go back and decides to apply for permanent status. So essentially a 360 degree saying, what does it take? We're here to solve the problem of long-term stability with the ability to write. What does it take to do that? So Henry, we've talked a bit about what you offer to the people who come and stay with you. What do they bring to the community? Well, when we first started, we didn't know. Again, back then, we thought this was a really simple, a writer sits in a house, writes, and nobody hears from them until they're done. And we discovered with the first writer turned out to be 
both charismatic and public. Uh, he began to perform his work out on the street. He did calligraphy on the outside of the house, and it became a landmark. And it became a real kind of public space, and he began to engage with the community a lot. And actually, probably within a couple months, he knew more people in this community than Diane and I did, and we'd been here since 1980. And we found out that what we thought was what I'll call a gift to a writer was actually a gift back to us as much. And it taught us as a community in making a home for this writer in exile, we were actually making a better home for ourselves. We were building bonds within our community that we didn't know existed in strengths all through this creativity that began to inhabit our community. And as the program grew, it became very central to the identity of the community and very much reminded us of a lot of core values that sometimes you take for granted that are certainly very much at issue today. The right to speak, the limits of speech, empathy, democracy, those are all live issues that have been going on here since the first writer arrived and have taught us a lot of valuable lessons. So I want to reintroduce you briefly. This is Peace Talks Radio. We're talking to Henry Reese, co-founder and former director of City of Asylum Pittsburgh. City of Asylum offers housing and other support for writers who've been forced to flee their home countries. I am Jonathan Miller. Henry, Peace Talks is a show about peacemaking and conflict resolution. Do you see a connection between what City of Asylum does and, and that? There's a deep connection that is based on the idea of, I think, of empathy and understanding reading itself is a core act of inhabiting another consciousness. And it can be challenging, it can be friendly, but whenever you read, you're often inhabiting multiple consciousnesses, that of the writer, that of the characters. And I think that that's at the core of actual social relations. And, and there's, there's something Richard Powers once said, which I think actually sort of gets to the core of this. And he said, no justice, no peace, no kinship, no justice, no empathy, no kinship. Reading and writing are exercises in empathy. And I think it's a big circle uh, that if you don't have that practice and your muscles aren't being used empathetically and you can't get outside yourself, which is not to say you don't evoke your own identity because that's critical to, to know who you are in the context of others. But as we've evolved, what we've seen is we've tried to give voice and open ears. And we have a lot of programming now that's evolved from various uh, activities we do. And, and core to that programming is having audiences that, who themselves are very as diverse as we can make them so that people who experience the programs are experiencing people who they often don't experience at cultural events. And so you're hearing from someone on a stage speaking about something that's very much uh, evoking, hopefully, empathy or understanding of another. But at the same time, the people you're experiencing with are also you're experiencing in a context of otherness. And that's been enlightening to us. We didn't, we didn't understand all that, and it's kind of happened a little bit at a time. You have been involved with the International Cities of Refuge Network based in Norway, and I think you've been on the board. Um, you've also been involved with building a network, I guess a, a somewhat more informal network here in North America. 
but still there, there are just a few places that do what you folks do in Pittsburgh and what we do over here in Ithaca. What would you say to people who'd like to create a city of asylum in their own community? The motto is about building community. We think of it as building a just community by protecting and celebrate freedom of creative expression. So it requires people like yourself, Jonathan, or in Detroit now there's a, a young couple that sort of took the lead and they're putting together really it seems like a very strong group of people and bringing some universities into the mix. There's a group in Rochester getting started, very similar. And now in D.C., George Mason University is beginning to lead it. But I think now they're looking to say, how do we begin to, over time, engage with broader communities? Because it does have that impact. And it's not extraordinarily expensive for the benefit that it develops. Typically, you could rent an apartment. There's no need to develop a house. Uh, to provide sanctuary for a writer. I, I mean, I think in Ithaca, that's, that's what you do. And that's most typically what's done. We saw a need in our community. And I think every community would localize very much what it's both its abilities and the strengths that the writer can bring to the program, even the specific country maybe, uh, maybe of particular interests to a community because of the nature of the population. I think Ithaca has been very strong in providing sanctuary to journalists and cartoonists over the years because of strengths within that community and interests. So uh, what I would say to everybody is it does change your community. It makes people very much aware of critical issues and better neighbors to themselves. And it resonates in unpredictable ways that, that everybody can be responsive to and responsible to. The idea of of free expression and free creative expression and uh, free speech is one that I, I found interestingly appeals to people at uh, all different spots on the political spectrum. You know, so many of these people who come through programs like ours uh, have a very strong political point of view. They're engaged in the politics of their home countries, uh, and you know, they certainly take positions, and that's what that's why they're in trouble. That's why they need help. I wonder if you could address this question of how your organization walks that line. Yeah, we've been very clear that we have very few positions that I would call political positions other than positions that relate to our mission, which are issues of freedom of expression, creative expression. We do take positions on that. Occasionally, there are issues that deal with the arts that, that go along with that or some narrow issues dealing with visas and asylum and other statuses. But typically, we don't want a writer to feel as if we have a position because we don't. We may contradict a writer's position. I mean, there are really, there are stories there that are not particularly conflicts with us. But if you think of, say, a Chinese writer, he was considered a rightist. He was, you know, we would, everybody here would think of him as an extreme leftist, right? In his mind, Mao was 95% correct. But he was considered because of the politics and the, not necessarily his positions, but the way the politics worked there, he would have been considered a rightist. Another writer was here not necessarily for political offense, but private offense. He'd been threatened with death by private interests, and it's not clear that it was particularly a political in that the way we would consider it political. Again, the Iranian writer. His book had been published and, and, and got through the censors and was a popular and won awards in Iran. And then a few years later, an imam 
said that there was a, an inappropriate scene that represented adultery. Uh, and there was no clear scene of adultery in the book, but there was a scene where you could intimate something. So he was eventually then arrested and put in prison. So he didn't set out to become a martyr or a, an advocate of creative freedom in that sense, but he became one. So it's sort of like the Winston Churchill, you know, some are born great and some have greatness thrust upon them. So these are writers who wish to write and, and write as creative people, not as politicians, typically. So our job and our mission is to make that possible, not to impede on that by taking a position of our own. Short of starting their own organization, how can listeners get involved in this work? The most obvious way is they can help by tuning into one of our programs online. Uh, they can go to alphabetcity.org and see the programming, uh, obviously donating, buying the books of through the bookstore online, buying the books of the writers, and just paying attention to what's going on in the world. The same can be true. They can help support Ithaca. They can support if they live in Detroit. They can advocate to other people, maybe talk about the mission and the problem a little bit more, uh, just advocating on behalf of the issue. Wonderful. Henry Reese from City of Asylum, Pittsburgh, thank you very, very much for being with us today. Thank you, Jonathan. To hear more from Henry Reese, look for the January 2022 episode at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Our hour-long version of the program and a full one-on-one with Henry Reese can be found there at peacetalksradio.com. Next up, we find out about the International Cities of Refuge Network. Stay tuned after this short break. It's Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Find us online at peacetalksradio.com. We're going to zoom out a bit for our final conversation about the Cities of Asylum movement, more commonly known in Europe as Cities of Refuge. And our final guest is Elizabeth Duvik, Program Director for the International Cities of Refuge Network in Stavanger, Norway. The network, known as ICORN, includes more than 70 member cities and geographic regions in 19 different countries. Only three of those are in the U.S., Ithaca, Pittsburgh, as we heard, and Detroit, although several other programs in the U.S. offer fellowships and other support for threatened writers and artists, usually at universities and other institutions. Again, here's our guest correspondent today, Jonathan Miller, a journalist and board member of Ithaca City of Asylum in upstate New York. Elizabeth Duvick, to begin with, tell me a bit about how ICORN came to be. 
Yeah, it was a lot of writers who uh, got together um, thinking about especially all that happened in Algeria in the beginning of the 90s with journalists having to flee and also the Salman Rushdie case. And uh, I think Rushdie himself said that it would be nice to have a place to to live and work where it was uh, safe and peaceful. And then the, there was a philosopher, Jacques Derrida, who came up with the concept of the city as a safe place, uh, and he took it back to medieval times and so on. So there's a bit of philosophy behind it as well, That, um, but it's also very practical, but that the, the city is a place where you live, where you have your networks, where where the communities are gathering and where you can actually meet people. So the idea of the city of refuge or the city of asylum was born with the parliament of writers that gathered in Paris in the mid-90s. Unfortunately, this network had uh, financial problems in the beginning of the 2000s and was about to collapse. But some of the cities said that this work is far too uh, important and, and far too too interesting for us as cities to to stop. So some of the cities uh, got together and Stavanger said that we will put some money into this and if you can uh, get an organization or some work together in three years, this is the money you get, you get three years. And in 2006 then ICORN was established as a project and in 2010 we then became an independent organization and we are now, since then we have been totally financially independent and have worked with bringing new cities into the network and bringing uh, persecuted writers and artists into these cities. It's interesting you talk about cities as the primary unit. And over here in North America, our cities of asylum or our cities of refuge tend to be kind of community groups, volunteer groups. But in Europe and elsewhere, the ICORN cities really are cities. So there will be a coordinator at the local library or in the local refugee office or something like that. Yes, exactly. There are very many of them are. We, we don't have one model that we, we say that this is how you should organize it in your city. So we also see that there are cooperations between a city that will, will bring some money to the table and a local organization, be it a pen club or another community group or an organization, human rights organization or, or literary organization that does the practical work. But especially in the Scandinavian countries, it's often a public employee that is the coordinator for the Icon City. So beyond Scandinavia, there are quite a few member cities as well. We have about 75 member cities. Which I was just speaking to a new one uh, today, and they are in 19 different countries. Out of Europe, it's mainly the Americas, be with um, the US, Mexico and Brazil. Um, as the three dominating countries. And people hear about ICORN and appeal directly to you for for help. There's uh, an application process. Can you just explain a little bit about how that works? A lot of the people who contact us have either heard about us from other organizations or from colleagues, be it journalists or writers or, or artists that they know. Many of them are already on the run, they are in a neighboring country from where they used to live or they are in other ways sheltering or or in hiding often. But we have quite a rigid um, application system um, which might seem a bit too complicated but it's also because of the length of the program. Each writer or artist uh, is offered a two-year residency in one of the cities and of course since we work with a lot of municipalities and um, 
other funders who use public money, they have to be quite uh, certain about who they are inviting. But it's also because we need to go through quite a good assessment of each person to make a good match um, that we can find a city of refuge that can fulfill this person's needs, whether it's professional or it's in other ways, so that this person can continue their work. Because that's the main goal that we have, is that each person who comes to a city of refuge should be able to continue their work as a writer, an artist, as a human rights activist, and mainly towards their home audiences from the countries where they came from, where they can no longer work. Now, do they have to pass some sort of a of a filter about how professional they are or how proficient they are or how advanced they are in their career? Is there some judgment if someone is just starting out or declares themselves an artist or declares themselves a journalist? How do, how do you filter people? We say that you should have some sort of uh, public production, uh, which means that you should have published something. But of course, it's difficult. Many people self-publish if you are in a strict regime where you cannot publish, and uh, now a lot of publishing goes on on the net, but you should be at least professional or semi-professional in the work that you do. But we do not uh, look at the quality of what you do, which means that you cannot expect if you are a city of refuge and invite uh, a persecuted writer that you get uh, the next Nobel laureate necessarily. And this is because you might equally be persecuted even if your your work isn't judged in, especially in the Western world, as a, a high quality literature, it that's not the criteria. Why is there a focus in Icorn on writers and artists? Tell me about the the rationale behind supporting this particular segment of society. Well, the writers and the artists, and I have to say the writers also include journalists, um, are often uh, first and soft targets to be uh, hit when uh, regimes strike down on their own populations or the, they try to grab power. And also the, the writers and the artists are working with uh, what we can call um, the human condition in fiction or in their uh, uh, photographies or in their paintings, um, they portray humans and human life as it is, and they investigate how different parts of being human can express itself. And this is very, I mean, that can be highly dangerous because you will go into often taboo areas like sexuality, like religion, the everyday life of a household, uh, gender issues, um, doesn't seem very dangerous to us when we sit in our armchair and read a novel, but we can we can remember that quite a lot of books also that has been published in the in the U.S. have been tried to be silenced by being banned or being cut out from schools, people being denied getting it out of libraries and so on, and they are very soft targets. They have very little protection because many of them work individually. They are not in big unions. They are not very strong at. Uh, with protection from from uh, the authorities, uh, so very often they are uh, easy to uh, suppress or to silence, unfortunately. One thing that has impressed me in my work in this area is this combination of the, the big ideas, this overarching goal to support free expression and, and a thriving civil society and to support people so that they can participate in their home countries and all that. 
and the really mundane day-to-day needs that the people have when they arrive. And that's often made more challenging by trauma. Some of them have come from very, very difficult situations. Tell me a bit about what people tend to need when they arrive on the doorstep of an Icorn City. Well, the first thing many say that they want and they need is a good night's sleep. So they need a place where they can feel safe. And uh, of course, as we know, the thing that you feel safe and the fact that you actually are safe isn't necessarily the same. But I think that the first thing that they need is, is to feel safe. And then they need, of course, to learn how to navigate the new society they are in. And that can be anything from getting your driving license back because there is maybe some restrictions on using the driving license from the country you came or to how to pay your your taxes or how to get your children to school back and forward safely. And it can be very practical, as you say. But almost all of the people that we bring into our our network or into our city of, of refuge, they are desperate to continue their work. So they need some way to connect to their peers, to their colleagues, where they came from, whether they are still back in their home countries or they are in other countries. Um, So that internet connections and practical things like that are also extremely important. Very often uh, they are interested in meeting peers and colleagues in the community, local writers or other artists and so on. But most of them are, first of all, working back towards their home countries and secondly, reorientating themselves as artists or writers in their new communities. Let me just reset for a moment here. You are listening to Peace Talks Radio. We're talking to Elizabeth Duvik, Program Director for the International Cities of Refuge Network, or ICORN. ICORN is based in Norway. They're at ICORN, I-C-O-R-N dot org. I am Jonathan Miller. Elizabeth, tell me a little bit about the security issues. I know that at ICORN headquarters in Stavanger, there is a security expert, at least one. Tell me about some of the challenges that people have when they're fleeing uh, their countries and settling elsewhere. Well, many many of the people have very um, dangerous journeys to get out of where they where they used to live. And that's a sort of safety issues that we cannot really help them with a lot because uh, we don't have people on the ground out in those uh, areas. Uh, but when they come to the new city, first of all, there's still many of them subject to, to harassment and, and slander uh, through the Internet and on, on social media. But I don't think we've had any real physical attacks on anybody who's been in our city of refuge. But we are careful because as I said people need to feel the safety which means that sometimes we do like have um, secret addresses they might have phone numbers that are not listed some people do not want to have their real name in the interviews or their photograph taken to be published so we are very careful to always talk to people about what their limit is of how they want to be exposed. And often it's not the pressure on themselves that's the worst, it's the pressure on their families back home. Because that can still continue even if they are in a new place and that is almost more difficult to handle for many than that the, the threats that they are exposed to themselves. You and I both know that two years is rarely enough time to get a life back on track and they've People have been forced to flee. 
What happens after the two years? That's the first question that, uh, usually the first question I get when we talk about ICON, because that's what both the cities who come into the network and others uh, first want to know. And it's very difficult. It's a very difficult question to answer because it's a very individual. Everybody has their own individual trajectory on, of their lives and what they want to do. We are negotiating and trying to find ways within the countries where the cities of refuge are, if those who want to stay on can find a way to to do that. And so far, we have mainly been able to find ways, but some have to move on. And we try to be quite active quite early on in the residency to find ways for people to move to new places if they do not want to stay or if they cannot return. I think all of the people who have come with ICORN, their biggest desire is to go back home. Of course, if it's possible to return, we try to assist if there is uh, anything we can do to make sure that the return is safe or to monitor and to continue to be in touch with people who return. But we have had people who have themselves chosen to go back to the home countries. When they have come back, it's been a little while and then they have been arrested. It's very sad. Elizabeth, you have studied conflict resolution and peace, I see. And uh, how do you connect that interest with the work that you do with ICORN? Oh, I don't feel that we are doing conflict resolution as such in ICON, but we are enabling those who come to us because they are the actors in their own communities who can change things there. And the change has to come from within, I think. It's very difficult to start that from the outside. And uh, conflicts can escalate or they can diminish based on how the different actors in the conflict are going about the or acting within that conflict. And I think that the most important thing is to enable a civil society, be it from abroad, to have a voice and to, to be able to oppose the powers uh, that be who are being either um, dictatorships or they are uh, in other ways suppressing their own populations. Now, I'm thinking that uh, many of the people hearing this conversation will be in North America. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the difference between the the ICORN cities in North America and the or in the Americas uh, and in Europe where it's more a municipal thing. Uh, if someone wants to get involved uh, over here, uh, what do you advise them? Is ICORN accepting new members and how can we grow this network and what would be your advice to someone who says that they'd like to do something like this in their community? We are absolutely uh, open for new members and we really need new members because there, unfortunately there are a lot of people who need to find a place uh, to stay safe to work um, on their writing or, the, or, or their artist careers. The first thing uh, is to look at uh, partners and organizations that are relatively stable um, so that this can be a sustainable, uh, a sustainable initiative. Then uh, get in touch with us here at ICORN and we will advise on others who are in similar situations or have been in similar situations who can, who can advise on what they did. If it's somebody in North America, we would probably put them in touch with People like yourself or another city of asylum in the U.S. who have more experience. But it's also a matter of finding financial support. 
I think that is uh, and that is different in each community and in each city of refuge how you do that whether you get public funding or you can get other funding but it needs to be sustainable because if you want to invite somebody you need to know that you can support that person for the time you have invited him or her and a family if possible and once you have a sort of a stable group or an organization and you have some financing you can also look at how you can get in-kind contributions like a flat or health care or other type of support but it's also good to hook up with groups and organizations or institutions that can give the professional network that you need. That can be a university, that could be um, a library or I don't know, for artists it could maybe be galleries or other organizations or institutions. Elizabeth Duvick, you have been involved in this work for about 25 years, right? 20-something years. What have you taken from, from this work yourself personally? What brings me forward every day is is mainly my passion for freedom of expression. I use it every day and I I grew up in a country in Norway where we have freedom of expression and I, I can't imagine what it's like being hunted down if you're a journalist uh, or your newspaper is being closed down. I find that so difficult to imagine. But to, to see people who I know now personally who have come through ICORN uh, through a safe place. Some have gone back, some are still working in uh, in their cities of refuge many years after they arrived here. And to see the fantastic work that they are doing, it is absolutely amazing, be it uh, organizing women's groups in Iran or criticizing the Chinese governments or, or the Honduran governments or whatever it is they're doing and working in their small or larger capacities to improve their communities, their, their countries, their, their societies back home. It's amazing and it gives me a lot of, of, of joy actually to see that. I think that each city of refuge should be really proud of the work that they do because it might seem, as you say, that there's a lot of mundane things and my internet isn't working and how do I get the kids to school and all that, but it really, really changes the world. You can learn more about the International Cities of Refuge Network at icorn.org. You can also find information there on how to apply for a residency, along with contact information if you'd like to start a city of refuge in your own community. We're providing more helpful links in our resources section on our website. Look for the January 2022 episode at peacetalksradio.com. Also, you'll find out more there about today's guest correspondent, Jonathan Miller, and his work with the journalism collective Homelands Productions at homelands.org. And that's Homelands with an S at the end. That link and uh, also partial transcripts, photos of our guests, links to the show, and more at peacetalksradio.com. And there are episode pages for all of our programs dating back to 2002 at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Plus there you'll find different ways that you can help support our nonprofit work at Good Radio Shows to bring you the Peace Talks Radio series. Nola Days Moses is our executive director. For Jonathan Miller, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Thank you.